Good morning, Connection Point Church. How are you doing? All right. I hope that you are at least beginning to get into the Christmas spirit. Um, If you're our guest here, my name is Joel Halpin, and uh, I'm the pastor of this church. I'm very excited that you are here uh, today. We were in the third week of a series on the presence of God called Christmas Presence. And something I want you to know, if you are new to our church, just uh, one thing that you're going to notice is we treat this church like a family and Uh, In fact, out there you'll see a sign that says we value relationships over religion, and that is a very, very big deal to us. And so I want to be clear when we're talking about the presence of God, what we're really talking to is those that are in what we call the household of God, the family of God, those that are, uh, some would say Christians, but I want to define it a little more than that because uh, some of us grew up with an idea of what a Christian is. And so I just want to say this off the front of when we preach this message, it's, t- it's preaching to Christians. And um, a Christian is someone who follows Christ, someone who is pursuing Christ. And re- that's really it. And so this is what you need to know about the family of God, is that God doesn't love good people. God loves sons and daughters, okay? God doesn't love good people. God loves sons and daughters, okay? That's who is in the family of God. It's not good people that are Christians. It is sons and daughters. The same way, if you come uh, to Christmas uh, dinner at my house, it's not good people. That's not the requirement. It's simply sons and daughters. And so the family of God is the the audience that we're we're talking to, and that's important because... um, When we talk about the presence of God, all of us go through moments where we don't feel like the presence of God. The first week we talked about the presence of God. Some of us can't enter into the present, into experiencing God now because of our past. Some of us have done things that we say in our minds disqualify us and we can't get past our past. And so the first week we simply talked about the fact that God's presence pulls us out of our past. We are forgiven. We are brought out of our past to meet with God's presence in the present. But then there are some of us who are stuck in the future. We're stuck in the future in a way that we're we're constantly thinking about, I've got to get better at this, I've got to do this. And, And last week we talked about the fact that God is not in love with some future version of you. He's not satisfied when you become complete. That God wants to meet you here and now just as you are. It's not something that you have to do. When you are a son and daughter, you are in the family of God. It's not something that you have to to wait and someday you'll be good enough. That when we meet God now, his presence is with us now. And the entire point of this series is this. God wants to meet you in the present with his presence. He wants you to experience it now. He wants to be with you now. And nothing that your past has done and nothing that your future contains is going to stop that. That is not what God wants. He simply wants to know you now. So, now that we're clear with that, we're clear with that, I just want to give you a little recap that God wants to know you. He wants to be with you now. Today, I want to talk about the presence of God, and I want to talk about one of the major keys. And so I'm going to invite you, go ahead, if you want to find the scriptures, you can go to connectionpoint.life on your phone. Uh, And at connectionpoint.life, there are sermon notes. We'll also have the scriptures up here um, as well. Or we are going to be in Luke chapter 1 today. And so you can find the scriptures at any one of those, connectionpoint.life. You can also find it up on the screens or in your Bibles, Luke chapter 1. 
Today is the key, I think, that most of us need to understand about the presence of God. This, if you understand the presence of this key we're going to talk about today, it's going to help you a lot to understand what it's like to be with God or to have God with you, his presence with you. Remember, that's what Emmanuel, the Christmas story, is about, God coming to be with us. But if we're honest, who in here, even this week maybe, and I, I want you to raise your hand. I want, to put you, I want you to put yourself out there. Who maybe just for a moment has felt maybe God was not with you this week? How many of us this week have thought, you know what, I've been good, but I haven't. Some of y'all are bold. Some of y'all are lying. That's what I think. I think some of y'all don't want to answer. Because I've felt that there are times in my life, even this week, where I'm like, is God really here with me? You know, I, I've, I've been to church enough. I've heard the forgiveness stuff enough. I've heard all this, but I still feel... As if I don't feel God. I don't know that he's here in this moment. Some of us feel lost or abandoned even as we go to church. Even as we pursue God. Even as we follow Christ, we can, we can find ourselves feeling lost or abandoned. Have you ever felt lost or abandoned in your relationship with God? You know, growing up... I had my first experience of feeling lost was in a J.C. Penney's, okay? Now, back in the day, J.C. Penney's was bigger than what you may know it as now, and there was actually a sporting goods section of J.C. Penney's, and one time I'm walking with my family, my mom, my brother, and my sister, I'm walking past, and I see footballs, and there's, I remember it to this day, I see these footballs, and I go into the, the little sporting goods section, and I, I wanted to see, I even remember what I was thinking. I pick up a football, a full-on uh, Spalding football, and I remember this, and I, I wanted to see if I could throw a spiral while the thing was still in the box. And so I picked up this football, and I threw across the, the, the room, and I, I was pretty young, I threw it, and sure enough, I could throw a pretty good spiral with a boxed football. Now, as I go pick up this box, though, I realize, wait a second, I don't know where my family is. And for the first time, I had this moment where I was like, I'm all alone. And I'm, I'm young at this time. I'm like five, six years old, and I, I, I do not know what I'm going to do. And so I just think to myself, oh my gosh, how am I going to get home? Do I even know the, I don't know the way home. I don't even know where we parked the car. In fact, I'm probably going to have to put one of these tents together and sleep. I remember trying to think, how am I going to survive this? Because my parents left me, my mom left me, my family left me, and it was probably five minutes, but you know how, it, as a kid, it seems like it was like hours, maybe even days, and I just remember seeing my mom come finally find me, and I'm crying by now, I'm, I'm like, I can't believe I, you left me, and, and she stopped, and I remember she said, just know this, if you ever get lost, I have not left you. I will not leave the store. I will never leave the store without you. And I, that made me feel pretty good because that same summer, I was in a Kmart. Now, if you don't know what Kmart is, think of Walmart, but not quite as fancy. That was Kmart, okay? Now, I was in a Kmart, and lo and behold, I'm playing uh, hide-and-seek with my brother, so it's probably his fault, but I'm in, in the clothing, which is the best place to hide, right? You go inside the little circular racks. I'm hiding in the clothes. And I come out, and lo and behold, no one is there. I know the drill. Okay, they wouldn't have left, but I'm still getting sad. I don't know where they're at. And somebody in a Kmart vest or whatever they wore 
comes up to me and says, are you lost? And I'm crying, I'm, yes, I'm lost. And they take me to the front of the store and they announce on the loudspeaker, they say, Suzanne Halpin, can you come to customer service? We have your son, Joel. And as she comes, I see my mom come within like two minutes. It was so quick, my whole family. And she's happy to see me. We're happy to see. And I was so excited because I knew now she wasn't left. And now I knew how to get them. And so the next few times we went to Kmart, I, I knew this trick to where you can actually get your name. They will talk about you on the whole store. You can be famous. I was Kmart famous. I'm telling you. Now, I actually got to the point where my parents had to tell me, Joel, you've got to quit running off at uh, Kmart and, and getting your name called on the loudspeaker. You've got to stop that. Because I, I became a point to get lost, knowing that they're never going to leave me. She's not leaving here without me. And I tested this several times, and she never left me. And, you know, by the way, God has paid me back because my daughter, uh, the first time I took her into a Target, she, uh, she, I said, do not run away. And I took, she was like, I just want to get out of the car. I just want to get, as soon as her feet hit the ground, she said, hide and seek, you're it. And she ran off and it was a nightmare. But all that to say, I learned very early that my mom and dad were never going to leave me in a store, that their presence, they weren't going to, to leave me just because I ran away, just because I abandoned them. They weren't going to leave me. And this is something, though, it's easy to understand with our, our, our parents, but it's hard to understand with God. The presence of God is a very, very important topic. And so as we get into the text today of Luke chapter 1, I want to just give you a theological question. And, and so maybe if you're uh, new to church or you haven't been in a while and you think about the Christmas story, you think about Jesus coming as a baby. But I want to remind us all that not one time in the Gospels does the Christmas star story start with the baby Jesus. It's very interesting. If you read every gospel, there's a, another baby that appears before Jesus. Every single one of the gospels has John, Jesus' cousin, being born before Jesus. And that's where they start the Christmas story. Now, I always say, hey, let me read you the Christmas story at Christmas. I'll read it. And I start at Luke 2. But in chapter 1, Luke says, I want to tell you about Jesus. And it's going to start with a man named John, actually a baby named John. Have you ever wondered why the Christmas story starts with John and not Jesus? It's very, very, very important that you understand. In fact, if you understand why John is a part of the Christmas story, it will help you understand how God's presence is with you. And it's important to understand that every single one of the the people who thought, I'm going to write this down so that you can know how Jesus uh, was born, started with John. And, and we call him John the Baptist, okay? Most people don't know this. He was actually Presbyterian. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. He would have just been John, okay? The reason we call him John the Baptist, the main reason is because it's easier to remember uh, because there were two Johns that were really big, and there were actually several Johns at this time. Uh, and there, Jesus' timeline John, would have been, John the Baptist would have been before, and then his friend John, who wrote the Gospel of John, would have been after John the Baptist. But for us to kind of separate them, we're going to be talking about John the Baptist today. John the Baptist was the cousin of Jesus. Now, 
in Luke chapter 1, verse 13 and 17, where I'm going to be, I want to just define out who you're going to hear. You're going to hear a man named Zechariah. That's Jesus' uncle, okay? Jesus' uncle, Zechariah. And then you're going to hear Elizabeth. That is his aunt. And when we talk to John, John, we'll talk about John. John is his cousin. And this is what verse 13 says in Luke chapter 1. An angel has appeared to Zechariah, who is a priest. And he says, do not be afraid, Zechariah. By the way, remember, I preached on this uh, last year or a few years ago. Every time you see a messenger of God, an angel, angel, that word means messenger. Every time you see someone, you recognize them in the Bible. They're always afraid. So he says, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard, and your wife will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. And so I just want to break this down for us a little bit, because a lot of us, when we think about God, we think about following Jesus, we think about oh, all these rules, we think about church, and how do we become a Christian, or how do we get to heaven, we think about all these things, and then you see it say, he's not going to drink, he must not drink wine or strong drink. What's going on here is... This angel comes and tells this priest, Zechariah, you've been praying for a child and your prayer has been answered. You're about to have a child. And not only are you going to have this child, this is going to be a special child. God is going to do something special in your child. And if you want to opt into this, you're going to make what we call a Nazarite vow. A Nazarite vow is something that any person can do. In fact, the Apostle Paul takes a temporary Nazarite vow. And it basically, he says, for a time, I'm not going to get a haircut. I'm not going to eat uh, or drink certain foods. And I'm going to devote myself fully to God for a little bit of time. That's what uh, Paul does. But then we see there are three people in the Bible that for some reason, God says from birth, you're going to be a Nazarite from birth. Samson is someone. He, it's an opt-in to what God wants to do. Samson has a Nazarite vow. He actually broke this vow and he cut his hair, if you know the story. Samuel was a prophet. And Samuel's mom made a Nazarite vow for her son so that he would be born and, and basically said, hey, I, I will raise him as a Nazarite devoted only to the Lord. And this angel comes and says, if you want into this greatness, onto this, this exciting thing I'm about to do, all you have to do is devote him to the Lord. So it's an opt-in is what's going on here. It's, it's a way that, that John's parents can say, we want to be a part of what God is doing here. It's not that drinking uh, a wine is wrong. That's not the point of it. The point of it is this is a way in which he can separate himself or what we would call be holy so that he can say, I want to see what God's going to do through me. If this is my course, I want to do this. That's what his parents do for him. And then the next sentence is probably the most important sentence in the life of John. And it's going to be our focus today. It says, he will be great before the Lord in verse 15. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. For the first time we have someone who says, who God says, he is going to be born of the Holy Spirit. He's not just going to be born of water. He's going to be born of the Spirit of God. Now, this is important because you need to understand John the Baptist is a prototype of, for you and me as we follow Christ. He is the first Christian, if you will, before Christians. He is the first one, even before Jesus is born, God says, I want to show you 
what someone devoted to me, filled with the Holy Spirit, looks like, okay? And he makes this promise. He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so I want to talk today about the Holy Spirit. What do we mean when we say the Holy Spirit? Who is the Holy Spirit? And this, and this is the short answer. The Holy Spirit is God's presence in you. The Holy Spirit is God's presence in you. And so when John is born, before anyone has ever been born of the Holy Spirit, God says he's going to be born of this Spirit, and and I'm going to do great things. But the Holy Spirit has always been present in the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, we see the Holy Spirit. It specifically says the Spirit of God was hovering above the waters at creation. That's in the, the very first verses of the Bible. The Holy Spirit is present. And we'll see it over and over. We'll see his presence come to some person. You'll see the prophets will will receive the Holy Spirit. You'll see kings receive the Holy Spirit. David will pray, God, take not your Holy Spirit from me. So the Holy Spirit is alive and active in the Old Testament. But you see, when we think about the Old Testament or, or the way that God was moving in the Old Testament, it was a foreshadowing. I've preached on this before. It was a foreshadowing of what God wants to do. Think of it this way, Um, whenever you build a dam, uh, before a dam is ever built, the water flows downstream at randomness, according to the seasons. And there's some seasons downstream where it just seems like the waters are coming and coming, but then there are some times downstream where it seems to dry up and, and no one has access to any water. And in fact, there are almost every single dam that you see built is built because at some point somebody said, you know what, we want to we be able to have access to water all the time, even downstream. And so for the Old Testament, it's almost as if this dam is being constructed in which the, the, the Spirit of God is doing something and it's filling and it's filling, but there's going to come a time in which the, the dam is released, the floodgates are released, and the Holy Spirit is unleashed on whoever wants to be there. And so when you look at the, the history of the Holy Spirit, you have the Old Testament, you have God's Spirit coming up on people who are seeking him and giving them power when they're seeking him. But in the New Testament, you begin to see this, this new way that God is moving. And it starts with John. He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then and, uh, later on in Jesus' life, Jesus is going to make a, 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 an interesting statement. He's going to say in John chapter 3, he's going to say, For anyone who wants to enter the kingdom of heaven must be born of water and of the Spirit. So in other words, just like John was born of water and of the Spirit, anyone who wants to enter the kingdom of heaven, it's not about being good, it's it's, are you born of water and the Spirit? And in fact, Jesus will clarify this. In fact, he talks a lot about the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 7, and I'll hit this verse again later, he actually says that the Holy Spirit will be given to all who follow him and that, that it will be like a living water that flows out of you. But he makes an interesting statement in John chapter 7. He says, but the Holy Spirit will not be given until Jesus has been glorified on the cross. So there's this time when John is alive where he has been born of the Spirit, but everyone else has has just seized this prototype. In Acts chapter 2, this is what we call Pentecost. This is the moment in which everyone there who has followed Jesus and has 
put their faith in this man who, who claimed to be God and died on a cross and they saw him rise from the dead and they saw him ascend into heaven and they trust him and then all of a sudden the Holy Spirit is unleashed on every believer. They have, the, the Bible says we have the Holy Spirit of God within us. And we see that first in John. And so if you are in Christ, if you're in the family of God, if you have trusted Christ and decided to follow him, you understand you were given a gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus meant when he said you must be born of spirit. That is, you must receive this gift of the Holy Spirit. God's presence is in you. But I want to talk about this. I want to clarify what this actually looks like because I think this is where most of us kind of dismiss the Holy Spirit. We assume, well, God's Spirit really isn't in me because I'm still doing a lot of things. I'm still thinking a lot of things that if God's Spirit was in me, I wouldn't be thinking about that. I wouldn't be acting like this if God's Spirit was really in me, so how could he be in me? But I want, to, I want you to understand that, that God's Spirit in you doesn't mean that God has replaced you. You still exist in you. And this sounds obvious, but some of us don't think this way. I was trying to think about what would be a good illustration to help you kind of see this. And I thought about, you know, Jesus, take the wheel. That's not a good one. I don't like that one. But this idea that, that you know, somebody else is just going to take control of our life. But that's not it. So what I came to is borderline blasphemous. So I want to apologize for this in the beginning. But I thought about a good 80s movie, okay? A good 80s teen movie, okay? Now, every... Y'all have seen an 80s teen movie, right? Okay. I got to know my audience, okay? So let me explain to you how an 80s teen movie goes. There's always a guy, he's usually not a cool guy, he's usually just an average guy, but something happens to this guy somehow, and he becomes a little popular or something, and all of a sudden he catches the eye of the cheerleader or the really, the pretty girl, and all of a sudden he like has this opportunity to, to go after the, the cheerleader or maybe win a state championship, whatever the goal is, he, he never would have been there, but he's going to be there, okay? And he has this opportunity, maybe he turns into a wolf, that happens sometimes too, but whatever it is... Whatever it is, he like has this opportunity to be somebody he's never been. And the whole time in every one of these stories, there's another person who's with him from the beginning. There's a girl, and she's always an average girl who wears glasses and a hat, right? There's a reason for this. She wears glasses for a good reason, okay? But everything he does is wrong when he's pursuing the cheerleader or when he's pursuing the championship or, or probably both. Everything he does is wrong. And every single time he screws up, he goes to this friend. And he goes to her, and he just says, oh, I just want this. And she's just there. And even when she sees, and she likes him, by the way, she wants to, to, to be with him. And even though he is neglecting her and leaving her and looking at these other prizes, she's always there giving good advice. And she's always there to be there, just to be there, just to be there. And she'll even stick with him when he's doing dumb things. And then at the end of the movie, what happens? He'll, he'll get the, the prize and he'll realize it's not all it's cracked up to be. And he'll look at this girl and for some reason she doesn't have her glasses on anymore, right? And she's got her makeup a little different and her hair's down long and she might be even dressed up, you know, or whatever. And he'll realize that the person who was there giving him this advice and speaking to him, that the number one thing she was, she was that, that none of these other things were, is she was there every moment of the way, and she just wanted to be with him. When we think of the Holy Spirit, I don't want you to think about somebody replacing your spirit with a better spirit. I want you to think about God as your friend, and his Holy Spirit is in you, but he's also with you. 
And that's important. Jesus said this when he was talking about to his disciples. He said, you are my friends if you do what I command. In other words, if you want to, to follow me, you are my friends. No longer do I call you servants. You're not just here to do you know, what I say when I say it. He says, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends that all who have heard from my father, uh, all that I have heard from my father, I made known to you. He called his disciples his friends. He says, you're friends of God. Later on in John 16, uh, not John the Baptist, uh, um, jo uh, John is telling the story that Jesus once said to them, right at the end, Jesus was going to be crucified, that he knew it. He looks at his disciples and he says to them, you know, it's good that I go away. It's good that I go away because if I go away, I will send to you a helper. I will send to you the Spirit of God. So in other words, if there's one man here, I have to always be with you to be with you. But it's good if I go away because I can send you the Spirit of God. And this is what, when, when we talk about the work on the cross, this is everything it was leading up to. Is that when God would say, or when Jesus would say, I will be with you always, which is what the last thing he said to his followers on earth, I will be with you always. The Holy Spirit is the fulfillment of that promise. Jesus says, if I go, I will send him to you. And indeed, that's what happened at Pentecost. And that's what happens every single time you make a decision to trust Christ with your life and follow him. You are not just born of water, which means a natural birth, but you're also born of the Spirit. And every single one of them, and you may grow, have grown up in a tradition that says, you're not born of the Spirit unless you go crazy. And I will let you know, that is not true. One of the, the fruits of the Spirit is that you will have self-control. One of the things I want us to understand is that this was a promise that is not conditional on you doing anything. This is once you decide, I'm going to follow Christ, you are given a gift of God's presence. The Holy Spirit is God's presence in you. And so let's look at what the Holy Spirit does in John. Because it's very clear, they, they actually do three things, and the Holy Spirit does more than this. God does more than these things. But there's three main things in this text that we see the Holy Spirit is about. The first one is in verse 16. He says he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah and turn the hearts of the Father to the children. Now, if you're not growing up, if you haven't grown up in church, that seems kind of weird of what he's just said. So let's go into uh, the context here. The context here is uh, there's a time that all this is happening in which people are wondering the same thing you and I wonder. Where is God? God has made promises. Where is he? Specifically, he has made these promises in the Old Testament and now it's 400 years since anyone wrote down something and called it scripture. 400 years has passed, and people are beginning to wonder. He said he would come again. He said he would send a Savior. He said he would come here and be with us. Where is he? And the last thing that was written in the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi. In fact, this is very interesting. If you turn to the last page of the Old Testament, Malachi actually says, Behold, I will send you, this is the last prophecy of the Old Testament, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, 
and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destructions, uh, destruction. The last prophecy is this, that before the day of the Lord comes, before God does his great work where his presence will be written on your heart, before all of the things in the Old Testament actually happen, Elijah, a prophet from the Old Testament, is coming back. He's going to come back. And he's going to make all of these Israelites who have walked away from God, if you are here and you have walked away from God, he, the first thing he's going to do is reconcile us. He is going to reconcile us back to God. He's going to turn the hearts of the people who, who used to long for God. He's going to turn us back to God. And, and he's connecting the Old Testament with the New Testament. That is why every single one of the gospel writers include John in the Christmas story. Because Jesus can't be Jesus unless John is Elijah. And every single one of them ties John the Baptist to Elijah. He does it through connecting him to Malachi. Matthew does it through connecting him to Elijah chapter, or to Isaiah chapter 40. And, and connects this. He will make way the, the path of the Lord. And they all connect John the Baptist to this figure who must come back. Now, he's not reincarnated prophet, okay? He's coming, fulfilling this duty, this role that was given. Do you know, to this day, every single uh, Jewish Seder, every single Jewish uh, Passover meal, there's a point, and if you've ever been, and we've done them in this church before, if you've ever been there, there's this point where the, the rabbi will tell the, the, one of the children, hey, go look at the door and go see. And who is, it, who is the child supposed to see is at the door? Elijah. Well, go check and see if Elijah there, because they know before God fulfills his promise. So even Jewish people that don't believe in the Lord understand this prophecy is important, that Elijah's got to return. And so all of the gospel writers say, hey, he's clearing the way here. So the first thing he does is he just re reconciles us all back to God. Jesus says it this way. He says, he will come, and when I send the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will come to you, and he will convict you of your sins. But he doesn't say he will condemn you of your sins. He says he will convict you. There's a big difference there. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ. He'll convict you. He'll show you, hey, this is a sin. This is the way you should go. John was there to make way the path of the Lord. He'll show you. The Holy Spirit will show you what you should do. He won't grab the wheel and make you. He'll whisper like, uh, I was going to name a, an 80s actress, but I won't do that. Uh, Molly Ringwall, he'll whisper in your ear, go this way. But... Uh, but all of that to say that, that this is the, the work of God is not to condemn you and say you're going to hell. It's the exact opposite. It's to say God's presence wants to be with you. Here's the way we need to go. Let's seek him. He is with you always. And the next thing he's doing is he's calling to repentance. He's teaching to love his righteousness, not your own. This is what he says. He says he'll turn the hearts of, and understand that's an important word, the hearts of children to their father, and then he's going to turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. It's very interesting that he doesn't say, I'm going to turn the disobedient away from God. I'm going to punish them forever. Instead, he simply says, I'm going to turn them to the wisdom of the just. Who are the just? The just in the context of Christianity is someone who has trusted in Christ. Someone who has received God's righteousness, not our own. Anytime we talk about being disobedient, it's not towards being better. It's towards Christ. The wisdom of the just is simply that you admit my way is not the right way. I need to trust God's way. He can forgive me of my sins. He can cleanse me of my sins. And, and he's the one that can take me out of my past and change my future. It's him, not me. That is what repentance mean, means. In fact, 
we, we talked about this. We, I meet and, and teach the youth on Wednesdays. And the middle school boys, we had a great conversation on, on Wednesday. We went through the Sermon on the Mount, which is probably one of the most, uh, it's, it's an incredible sermon, but it's also one of the most confusing, the most abused by, by most Christians, misunderstood. Do you know that people would hear Jesus talk and Jesus would say things that to us we'd be like, whoa, that's, that's a lot of rules. But no one ever summarized Jesus' teachings with, he said, do this, do this, do this, do this. No one ever summarized Jesus' teaching. Now, you might have summarized the Bible or this, but that's not what Jesus says. When they summarize Jesus' teaching, Matthew, or I mean Mark, starts off his gospel saying, hey, if you want to know every sermon Jesus preached, it was basically a two-point sermon. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Every sermon Jesus preached came back to repent and believe. This repentance is simply saying, my way does not work. I am a sinner. I have fallen. My way does not work. I can never be good enough. Repent and believe. And he says, believe the good news. That's what Jesus says. The good news, the gospel. That's simply that you don't have to be good enough because God gave you a way. He sent his son. And when you believe the gospel, which is simply this, that everything you deserve, Jesus took to a cross. He died on a cross and he rose again. And when he rose again, he showed he was the Messiah, the anointed one, the one the Old Testament said would come and reconcile you to God. Repentance is simply saying, it's not my way, it's God's way. Believing the gospel is simply saying, God is good, not me. I'll take his righteousness for mine. So, John, when they are talking about the Holy Spirit, this is what's going to happen with, with the life of John. He's going to reconcile. The Holy Spirit is reconciling us to God and is doing it through this repentance of taking us when we're disobedient and turning us towards the just, the wisdom of the just. And the wisdom of the just is this. I can't be good enough. I need to, cha- to exchange my worthlessness for Christ's worth. The last thing he does is he makes ready. It says he's going to turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and he's going to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. He's going to prepare us to receive Christ. And the interesting thing in the timetable, Jesus isn't born yet when this is said over John. John, uh, in John chapter 7, it, it clarifies this a little bit. He's making ready. What is he making ready? Well, the Holy Spirit isn't unleashed until Jesus has fulfilled his, his uh, um his mission to die on a cross and to raise from the dead. And so before Jesus has actually done that, we have this, let's just get ready. The message that Jesus preached, repent and be baptized, uh, which is repent and, and believe. Baptism is a picture of what we believe. Okay, Jesus died on a cross. He rose from the grave. You know, John's uh, repentance was a little different. It wasn't repent and uh, believe yet. It was Repent and get ready. That's how you would say, repent and get ready. And so when he's saying this, he's saying, hey, now the one thing that, was, that had to happen, Elijah had to come back, has been fulfilled. Now you need to leave your life ready for God to inhabit you, to be with you always through his Holy Spirit. When you are in Christ, when you receive his Holy Spirit, you are reconciled to God. You are repenting, that is, you are admitting every day, it is not my way, it is his way, it's not my righteousness, it's not my good deeds, I am disobedient, but I'm going to, to take his, his goodness, and it covers my sins. And I'm going to live a life ready, as if the presence of God is with me always, because it is, because the Holy Spirit is God's presence with us. 
The reason this is so important to me, for you to know that, that the Holy Spirit is in you when you are following Christ, that he is with you, is because there's so many of us who every single day live as if God has abandoned us. And even if we desire him, we just don't feel, we don't feel worthy. We live as if we have disqualified ourselves and we miss the entire point of Jesus coming to this earth. The entire point is that Jesus could do in us what he did in John. His presence was always with John, was always. Jesus says there's no one more righteous than John, and it's not because John was a good person. It's because he had this Holy Spirit living in him. The presence of God was with John, and he is with us too. On Wednesday, I was preaching, I was teaching through the Sermon on the Mount with a youth and uh, Sermon on the Mount is a crazy, I've been studying a lot for an upcoming sermon series, and it's a crazy uh, way that Jesus goes about teaching. But one of the things that we came to is, the end of it, Jesus basically says, I don't care if you do good things. I don't care if you preach to my name. I don't care if you, I don't care if you healed people. The only thing I want to know is, do I know you? Do we have a relationship? That's all Jesus cares. That's how he ends the sermon. The sermon is saying, do we know each other? I never knew you. If I never knew you, you'll never be a part of me. And so we started talking uh, with the students, and we are all like, yeah, I know that Jesus is always with me, that the Holy Spirit is always with me. And then I asked this question. What about this week if you broke some of the things Jesus just said in this sermon not to do? He said if uh, you're mad at someone, you need to forgive them. If you haven't forgiven, if you've if you gone around mad... How does God feel about you? If he's with you, is he happy with you? If you, one of the things Jesus says right before he says, uh, um, the end of the, before the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, if you have uh, looked at a woman with lust in your eyes, you are ready for hell. You're separated from God. And he said, only being in the family of God can fix that. So I asked the students, I said, what if you've looked at pornography? What if you have uh, hated your brother or sister, and you've called him a fool, which Jesus says you can't call people fools. He, he sets this bar so, and then Jesus says you've got to be perfect. I understand that Jesus wants to make you perfect through his spirit. And, and I said, we know that God forgives us of these things. We're forgiven. That was the point of the message. But I said, how does God feel if you are in Christ? His presence is in you. His Holy Spirit is in you. But this week you struggled with sin. And one by one, they started throwing out words. Ah, he's probably disappointed in you. Ah, he's probably ashamed of you. He's probably doesn't like you at that point. And that's where I just kind of took me back as I was preparing this of any time we think that uh, God, God's presence is with me, but he's probably not happy with me because of what I've done. We've missed the point of what he's doing. You see, his presence isn't just in you because it has to be. His presence is with you and in you because Christ has made you clean. You need to understand when we say presence of God is in you, it, it, it means that you have been righteous. You have been made righteous through the work of Jesus. And so here's how I want to end this message. We have this promise in this, you hear this all the time at church, God has forgiven you, God has forgiven you, God has forgiven you, he is with you, his presence is with you. So here's why I want us to, to, to end this. 
if this promise is true, that God has reconciled us, he has called us to repentance, that is, to, to take on the righteousness of Christ, and he's readying us to live a life in the presence of God. I want you right now, you can do this uh, later on uh, physically, but right now I want you to make a list in your mind of everything that has either disqualified you from following Jesus, something you've done, or, or maybe a, a sin that you said, I'm never going to do that again, and then this week you did it like five times, and you said, God has got to be disappointed. Anything you've done that's disappointed God this week, I want you to think about that. And I want you to understand this, this list that you're making, maybe it's uh, that you just weren't, weren't good enough. Maybe it's that you yelled at your kids ten times and, and, and you said you were going to stop that last week at church. Whatever it is that you think, you know what, God's probably not happy with me. In fact, he probably, he, he might not have left me, but he took a step back this week because of this. Whatever that list is, I want you to think about it for a second. And now I want you to understand that that list is pure evil. That list in your mind is from Satan himself. It is the antithesis of everything the Holy Spirit is doing in your life. When we say God's presence is with you, it means God's presence is with you and wants to be with you. He sees you as his son or his daughter in Christ. He loves you. He's not waiting for you to get your act right. He's not sitting in the corner saying, man, he screwed up again. He knows all this, and that is why he came. And he gives us this glimpse of one man before Jesus even arrives on the scene. And he lives this life, not a perfect life. John the Baptist was not perfect, but God was with him. And God is with you too. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much again for the honor to pastor this church specifically. Lord, there's many in this room that grew up in a denomination or another church in which forgiveness was preached, but there was always an expectation. I've got to stop this or I've got to start this in order for you to really love me. If your presence is really going to be with me and I can be confident, the only way that will ever happen is if I'm good enough if I can live, live up to some set of expectation. Lord, I thank you for this message today that you have put on our hearts. And we can never be good enough for you, but we don't have to be good enough for you. Your promise was that through Christ we will be reconciled. His Holy Spirit will, will, will come to us not because we earned it. It is a gift. It is a Christmas present. Lord, I pray right now, if there's anyone in this place that doesn't truly know you, that's living apart from you because they think they'll never be good enough anyway, why bother? Lord, I pray that their heart will turn to you today. I pray that they'll cry out to you today. Lord, I want to be a son or a daughter because I'm not good enough. I need your presence. And Lord, I pray they walk out of here just as the rest of us walk out of this place today, knowing we are forgiven, we are reconciled, we have exchanged our rags for your riches, and we are ready for you to work in us this week. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.